Hello, ladies and germs. This is Greg Trevenstead, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine and your host for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Gregory Frazier. Dr. Frazier has been described as America's number one extreme motorcycle adventurer. He has circumnavigated the globe six times on a motorcycle, including once with a passenger. Dr. Frazier is an author, a photographer, and a filmmaker with 16 books, 10 films, and countless articles to his credit. He has a new book out called Adventure Motorcyclist, Fraser Shrugged. Dr. Fraser, welcome to the show. Greg, it's nice to be with Rider Magazine. It's one of my favorite magazines. I've been with Rider for years. I used to submit articles and I've watched the transition and uh, uh, I still get it. I'm I'm a digital subscriber now, and uh, uh, great job you're doing there. Carry Thank me you. forward into Thank the. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, Ryder's been around for a long time. I know you've written, you know, countless articles in all kinds of publications. Uh, you know, I've been an admirer of your writing for many years as well. It's interesting because uh, the first and only time you and I have met. Let's see, I'm in California right now. You're in Colorado at the moment. Correct. Yeah, the first and only time you and I met in person was in Thailand. A little over 10 years ago at the uh, Bangkok Motorbike Festival. That's correct. Uh, 13 time zones away from here, or exactly halfway around the world. Exactly. So um, when COVID and pandemic stuff isn't screwing up your travel plans, you live part of the year in Thailand? I'm usually over there for about five to six months. I went in to Thailand first uh, 21 years ago as a tourist, and I said, hey, I like this. It's motorcycle um central and it's like 30 million motorcycles over there and 70 million people so for a motorhead like me that was like i'm in the candy store or the china shop whatever you want to call it absolutely i mean we i had the good fortune of being there with my brother with uh ron Ayers when he was still alive uh, we got to do a tour of northern thailand from chiang mai to all the way to do some uh, scenic stuff and then ended up in Bangkok for the motorbike festival. Absolutely beautiful country. I would love to go back. So that's great. Well, come on over and give me a shot before you come. We'll, we'll gin something up. I'm based up there in Chiang Mai. Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. So you've been around the world half a dozen times on a motorcycle. You've written books and films about your adventures, but uh, let's sort of go back a little bit. How did you get into riding? Writing? W-R? Well, both. I mean, you know, but start out with motorcycles, then we'll get to the writing with, you know, words part. Well, the, uh, the adventure into motorcycles was when my mother said, no, I can't have one. You know, <laughs> like, like most children, I went the other direction. So I was about uh, 17 or 18 when I first stepped on a motorcycle. And it was a moped. It was a small, I think a Sears model, something that they, it had pedals, but you moved in the wind. And from there, I graduated. So about 56 years ago. Wow. I started. You've, done some, you've done some road racing. I've seen some photos of you uh, on some tracks, winning some endurance races, racing with Reg Pridmore. I was uh, in the game from 1971 up until 1974. Wow. 1971 okay. was a real steep learning curve. And then uh, 1972, I started to win races. And 1973, we finally captured what what I started out wanting to do, which was win the five-hour endurance race on a BMW in Danville, Virginia. Cool. So I, I raced, uh, and I've raced a lot of motorcycles since then. Uh, Honda, 
1936 Indian Sports Scout. Uh, I raced that up Pikes Peak and I flat tracked it at Sturgis, uh, road raced it at Daytona, uh, Savannah. So I, I've been in and out of the racing game, but now I'm I'm too old. Back then when I was in the game, I didn't understand the equation between speed and pain. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you, you have a racing background that's, you know, you certainly developed your skill set, but you're best known for traveling around the world on motorcycle. You've done that. You've done it six times on a motorcycle. Is that a, is that a record? I can't imagine anybody's done it more times than you have. Uh I have an acquaintance who uh, has gone around the world seven times, but twice on bicycles. Oh, okay. So he he uh, he uh, motorized his bicycle circle of the globe. Okay. I've uh, I've never applied for any records. You know, like Guinness, they give you records for how many nails you can shove up your nose or how many <laughs> worms you could eat. It just it doesn't ring my bell. Right, right. In fact, right. The, the first uh, loop around the globe, I, I didn't really know I had done it. Uh, I was uh, filming the best roads that I could find in the world. And I worked my way around the globe. So how did you get it? So you're, you know, you have the title of doctor, you have a PhD, is that correct? I like to tell people I have a PhD in the survival of the roads <laughs> of the world. I've been in some of the ugliest places, uh, Egypt, uh, you know, Cairo, downtown Cairo. It's really ugly. Uh, Mexico City, um, you know, India, Bangladesh, uh, and I've survived them. So how did you get into filmmaking? And then, I mean, it sounds like, you know, as you're filmmaking, you were doing the, uh, that uh, Best Roads project. You were doing that you were on a motorcycle as you were filming that project? Yes, we mounted cameras on the motorcycle, uh, much like you'd have a GoPro put today, but they were the big you know, 10 pound, 15 pound cameras on the, on the gas tank shooting through the windshield. Um, I didn't do the Walt Fulton one where I had it on the side of my helmet with a battery on the other side. Right. But um, we did uh, about a dozen films um, the 10 best highways in the Alps, the 10 best highways in America, the 10 best highways in uh, Australia. Uh, so uh, I, I was writing the scripts for those at the same time um, and uh, had, to, had to learn to uh, use the right vernacular and uh, also uh, keep it brief. Sure. But, uh, the idea was to uh, share information. Sure, absolutely. That sounds, I mean, sounds like a great project to be able to not only film, but experience some of those roads. I mean, I've been to the Alps, I've never been to Australia, and I'm sure I've maybe sampled a couple of those roads here and there. But um, one of the things I love about, you know, riding wherever is that it's some of the hidden gems. Some of the famous roads are famous for good reason, but some of the true best roads are ones you probably never heard about, you know. Correct. And yeah. I thought I, I found some really good ones, but I keep finding more. Yeah. Yeah. My tastes have changed also. Uh, back then I made fun of people that went from restaurant to restaurant. It's not a bad way to look at a good road. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like the first time you went around the world was more or less uh, almost kind of by accident because you had this project you're working on. So what made it, what motivated you to go around, you know, a second time, a third time, a fourth time? You even went with a passenger one time, right? Yes, I, I took a, uh, a grandmother who had Parkinson's. 
and she wanted to go around the world, but she didn't want to ride a motorcycle. So she found me and said, would you take me around the world on the back of your motorcycle? And I conjured that, that image and said, oh, I haven't done this before. <laughs> that, was, that was trip number five. Uh, trip number two came about after I met a German guy that purported to be an expert on going around the world. He'd never done it himself, uh, but one of those uh, book, book experts. And he said, well, because uh, you didn't file a flight plan with me before you left on your trip around the world. I can't validate that you did it. And I thought, you know, if this guy was in America, we'd have him in a rubber room. Do I care <laughs> if he validates me or not? No, but it kind of stuck in my craw. And I, I put together a plan to go around the world, but tag the highest points on the planet that you could do and the lowest points. So I went up to uh, Dead Horse, Alaska, and then down to Ushuaia in South America, and then up to the North Cape in uh, Europe and down to the bottom of uh, Africa, Cape Agulhas. And then I even went to the bottom of uh, New Zealand. If you look on a map, it's even lower than Cape Agulhas on the global map. So I was going like a big W around the world. And I had, uh, I had a fixed plan. I had airline tickets in advance and um, you know, a fixed, real fixed schedule. But uh, that one said, okay, yeah, I had a plan versus the one before, which was I kind of got lost. So uh, again, you've done this multiple times. So uh, what was it that you had maybe wanted to experience uh, for your third journey, your fourth journey? Is it to, to go to countries that you had not visited um, previously? Was it to take a different kind of route, to use a different kind of motorcycle? I mean, well, the, the, the third uh, loop around the globe was to uh, do it on motorcycles that were manufactured on the continent I was crossing. Oh, and I never, I never found a, a motorcycle that was manufactured on the continent of Antarctica, nor uh, Australia. They make some in Australia, but not manufactured for public sale. So uh, I used a uh, Indian chief to cross North America, and then a BMW to cross Europe, and then a um, uh, Enfield, uh, and then a Honda to go through Asia. And then back to America, I used a Harley Davidson to get back home. Cool. So that was using motorcycles that were manufactured on the continents that I was crossing. And the, uh, the next loop around the globe was uh, kind of a, a dumb one. I had built a bike for a magazine that was to be a, a good round the world bike. I'd used BMWs mostly before then. And, and Kawasaki had that KLR 650 out and I'd seen them. This was in 2001. So, we built uh, a round the world KLR 650. And in my studio where I do my artwork and bike construction and race bike maintenance, um, one of my buddies was there one night and we were uh, swilling and chilling. And he said, well, the motorcycle's done. Walk your talk. You said it can go around the world. And I ended up using that KLR and took five months out of my life and one around the world with it. And it's now sitting in the National Motorcycle Museum out in Anamosa, Iowa. Awesome. Uh, so that was, a, that was trip number uh, four. And then trip number five was the uh, lady with Parkinson's. Um, we took 14 months and did about, uh, I think it was about 40,000 miles on a number of different motorcycles. Uh, she really had a tough go of it uh, because of her Parkinson's, but she hung in there. Yeah. All the way up to the North Cape and uh, all the way uh, down to Ushuaia and Cape Agulhas and, and um, even uh, uh, Dead Horse, Alaska. 
So that was a conventional motorcycle. It wasn't a sidecar. I mean, where did you carry your gear? Because normally you put your gear where the passenger sits. So well, we didn't have any sidecars. We did change motorcycles uh, rather than ship them expensively across water. Right. Um, we used a, a KLR 650 two up to go uh, up to Dead Horse, Alaska, and then uh, in South America we used a, a 1982 GL 650 which is a Honda, um, and, and we learned to, to cut down all the, the excess weight. Um, sure. Anyway, we used a BMW um, 1150 in Europe, and uh, we also used uh, my uh, K100 RT that I keep in Europe, and then in Africa, we used a, a GS 1150, and then in uh, Asia, we used uh, a uh, Yamaha Tenere. All of them are, uh, well, you wouldn't call the GL650 a dual sport uh, or, or the uh, R, uh, K100RT, but uh, hey, they're just motorcycles, you know, two wheels and you know, we didn't care what they were badged as. Um, yeah, absolutely right. Any motorcycle can be an adventure bike, you know, it just sort of depends on the mindset and the rider. So, you know, I've never been around the world. Most people have never left their home country. So having been around the world multiple times and, and multiple circumstances, what fascinates you most about traveling around the world and visiting some of these places? I look at the, at the cultures and uh, I study the economics of the countries that I'm going through. I'm an economist and I like to look at how these countries are making it, whether they're communist. I went to Cuba, for instance, back in uh, 2001 um, I've been to uh, Vietnam, uh, Miramar. Uh, so I've looked at the communist countries and then I was in uh, Germany when the wall came down. So I ran up and looked at East Germany. And then I look at the capitalistic countries and I'm fascinated with the way they uh, percolate along. Um, so I, I look at the infrastructures like in India, I looked at, uh, and, and Bangladesh, but uh, I looked at the in infrastructure of those countries they, they, they did well until the British pulled out and then the infrastructures just kind of imploded and you can see it um, uh, and, and you question, well, how is capital developed here in these countries that is needed or a debt is needed to uh, take it to a, a higher level, uh, cost of living for the people, for instance, like you were in Thailand. Uh, Thailand's uh, well, per capita income is about $2,500 a year. In the neighboring country of Laos or Cambodia, it's about $250 a year or one-tenth. Wow. So I, I look at those things and, you know, I, I'm not a real good temple viewer. Uh, I, I don't like to take the rug factory tours. Um, and uh, I, I don't really follow the Lonely Planet's suggested uh, tourist destinations. I'm, I'm more interested in uh, you know, what's a dollar worth? What was it worth? Where's it going? Sure, and sure. how's their um, uh, economy perking along? I was fascinated <clears throat> in, in Vietnam. Those guys have, you know, that's the fastest expanding economy in Southeast Asia. And you look at it when I was, uh, you know, listening to uh, shells drop over there and airplanes take off. Uh, it was it was knocked down to the bottom of the of the register, but now it's really it's really done well. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, different cultures, different economies. You know, they like I said, they follow different paths and have some 
are you know models of success. Some are certainly struggling. I know this whole pandemic thing has really sort of you know knocked some of these countries uh, you know um, off whatever path they were on. It's, it's a real challenge. So you know it, we are talking about adventure riding. You, you know your sense of adventure is one to go out and experience a culture, immerse yourself in it. You're not just passing through and snapping your photo and and you know sort of doing it for Instagram, but it's Adventure riding has been really popular in the last few years. The motorcycles are popular. They've been a bright spot in motorcycle sales since the, the industry has been pretty stagnant since the Great Recession. But adventure riding is really not new. I mean, how long have, has adventure riding been around, you know? I'd submit that it's been around since the first guy threw a leg over that wooden wheeled uh, thing that they made in, in uh, Germany. Um, that must have been an adventure to trust that compression uh, engine, steam engine underneath his, uh, junk, uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to go a hundred yards. But, uh, uh, it all takes place uh, in the mind. What we used to call, uh, motorcycle touring. Um, and I did a book on uh, motorcycle touring for, uh, uh, the, the world's biggest motor book publisher. Uh, back then, uh, the word adventure was around, but no, it was called motorcycle touring, and today it's called adventure touring. Um, a lot of people say that the BMW GS created the niche of adventure motorcycling, and that's really wrong. Um, but if it gets said often enough, and there was a German guy that said this back in 1945, he said, if you take a lie and you tell it often enough, it soon becomes truth. And I've seen it published uh, repeatedly that BMW created the niche of adventure motorcycling when I uh, with it with the GS the enduro motorcycle uh, when the uh, designer Hans Muth of the GS motorcycle uh, gave a presentation on how he arrived at the BMW GS prototype he not once in his presentation and I've listened to it twice now he does not use the word adventure um, when I went to the the two-wheel museum in in uh, Heidelberg, I mean, not Heidelberg, uh, um, uh, anyway, in Germany, um, some years ago, uh, as a display of, of the BMW GS, what they had was the Paris Dakar replica. That was what uh, the museum had for the GS. They've since changed that. Now they've put the uh, uh, R80 GS and they put the word adventure above it. So. They're saying it a thousand times, uh, but in fact, and I'll take you back a little bit, maybe your readers, I'm sure the writer guys all know this, but uh, 1968, there was a group called Steppenwolf, and they, uh, they had a song called Born to be Wild, and then in 1969, the movie came out with uh, Peter Fonda and uh, Dennis Hopper and, and uh, Jack Nicholson. Oh yeah, he's a writer. Yeah, and what's that song? How, what are the, how do the lyrics go? They said, head out on the highway, looking for adventure. So there's the word in 1968 and motorcycles, and they weren't enduro motorcycles. They weren't riding on dirt. They were out there on the highway with a couple of Harley choppers. Um, I also found a book of a couple that had done a trip across America in 1913, the first woman to go across America in a sidecar uh, in the 1913, um, with a 1913 Henderson and her husband. Um, and uh, the, the, um, the book is called uh, Going Some, 
and adventure. And that's a recounting of something that happened in 1913. Right. So when we take a look at the at the word, we call it adventure motorcycling, adventure uh, motorcycles, adventure bike. It's been out there for a long time. Uh, it's just become a popular cliche, um, and it'll morph into something else um, 20 years from now. Well, and you've written some historical books. Uh, you know, you wrote a book about uh, Clancy and his. What was when did he first go around the world? Uh, what year was that? He started in 1912 and finished in 1913. He used a 1912 Henderson motorcycle, seven horsepower, one gear. <laughs> um, you look at the shifter on the side of the tank and the pictures that we have of him, and people think that's like a, a, a Harley or an Indian tank shifter. It's not, it's an in and out clutch to the one gear. So his, his speed was about top, maybe 35 miles an hour. Um, but uh, he did all, just over 20,000 miles as he circled the globe in that period, 1912, 1913. Well, and roads, I mean, much more crude than they are today. We didn't have, you know, there weren't gas stations available. And, you know, is that I'm sure anybody that travels around the world on a motorcycle, it's going to be some sense of adventure. There are going to be some challenges. But, you know, we have, uh, in terms of the reliability of motorcycles, sat phones, everything, credit cards, you know, um, um, internet connections. It's just, you know, it's, you can't truly get lost in some ways. Uh, and so many people are trying to document the ride as they go. They've got sponsorships. Um, but yeah, it's, I know when you've done it in the past, it was, it's much more of an old school approach, you know, a lot more simple. And like you said, trying to immerse yourself um, and not necessarily just, um, you know, it wasn't a sponsored ride necessarily. So. Uh, I hate to admit this, Greg, but uh, I'm a Luddite. I still don't have a smartphone and I still don't use a GPS. Uh, let me share with you because I, I, I know that uh, your, your readers can't see this, but I'm going to describe it. Uh, I had a couple guys that went, uh, wanted me to take them across uh, Europe and Russia. And uh, one of them was the money guy. And he sat in D.C. and he learned Russian because we were going to go across Russia. Sure. First... Uh, big town we hit in Russia is Moscow. Well, those two guys turned around and headed home with their GPS, with their electronic dictionary, with their uh, cell phones. And I was there and, uh, and I was committed to finishing the trip around the world. I'd already gone halfway when I hit Moscow. Sure. So uh, as they left, uh, I thought, oh, I'll just buy a map at the local gas station. I'll be fine. Well, they don't sell maps at gas stations in Russia. This is 2002. I don't know what they do now, but, uh, and I had no, I had a little cheap dollar compass that Andy Goldfine had given me as kind of a joke when he heard I was headed off on, on, out through the, the emptiness of Siberia. And uh, that, that did point north, but I had carried with me a, a map of the world. I'm showing it to you that you're ripping out of an airline magazine. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a fold out. And this one happens to be from, uh, I think, oh, China Airlines. <laughs> that is my map that I used to get across eight time zones of Russia. Wow. Um, so I mean, not a lot of roads to choose from. <laughs> Well, there was one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was just finding it. Uh, they didn't have uh, uh, roads that went around the cities. That one road went right through the middle of the city. Right. So it was a, a warren of roads once you hit the city. But it, I got across in about three weeks. And uh, uh, when I got lost, I, I, I made some new acquaintances. 
That's great. I mean, that's, I mean, that's truly traveling, you know, traveling and surviving by your wits, which is something that uh, a lot of people are, you know, not willing to get outside their comfort zone, um, you know, and so to truly put yourself out there where there's not, there's not a net, you know, so to speak, you just sort of jump and, and you go for it. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's very admirable. That's the sense of adventure that, and again, as we've talked about, you know, adventure can be anything. It can be taking your gold wing to a campground and just, you know, pitching a tent. Uh, you don't have to go off road. You don't have to have a big rugged motorcycle. Um, like you said, an easy rider. They were just, you know, they just had their bed rolls and they had their, uh, they would just put a little campfire somewhere and, um, but they were on choppers. You can be on anything uh, for a sense of adventure. So, um, but, you know, like I said, you've written a lot of books. People like to read about the adventures of others because not everybody has the uh, wherewithal or the, uh, the the capability or the, I guess, willingness probably more than anything to um, commit to the time and uh, effort that would involve in going around the world. You know, they got mortgage payments, they got kids or something. So um, yeah, a lot of people have the wanderlust in the dream, but uh, you know, not that many people have done it. Today, I think uh, it's just time and money. Yeah. You know, how much money do you want to blow and how much time can you carve out? Uh, so the bikes that you've ridden over the years, I'm not sure if you've ridden some contemporary bikes. You've talked about KLRs and GSs and, you know, what would you consider one of the better adventure bikes these days? Or that, you know, if you were to go around the world again, maybe you wouldn't do it now. But if you were, you know, what kind of bike would you choose for a journey like that? <laughs> There's so many out there that are good. Yeah. That's a hard call, uh, Greg. Um, in my new book, Adventure Motorcyclist, uh, Fraser shrugged. I shrugged because th that question came up, oh, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. And uh, in that book, I, I um, republished the, my, my choice of um, Adventure Motorcycle of the Year. And again, this year, I grant the same motorcycle my choice of Adventure Motorcycle of the Year. Now, I'm not a, uh, it doesn't have to be badged adventure. So my choice is the Kawasaki ZH2SX. Wow. If you, if you want to show up and put those other guys uh, back a step, show up with that 300 mile per hour, kilometer per hour, horsepower. Yeah. I had a chance to uh, ride one at uh, Sepang in uh, Malaysia, uh, press intro, and I, I almost did it and it was on the Grand Prix track. But then I thought, what am I gonna do with the extra 160 horsepower? I'm like a 40 horsepower guy. <laughs> but right, right, right. if I had uh, my pick and time and money wasn't really, that's my pick of the Adventure Motorcycle of the Year. Kawasaki has done everything to make that just in my opinion. I, you know, and I'm a road race guy, I admit yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But that that uh, every time I walk by, there's one here in town in a in a, a case yeah. hasn't come out yet. I said, "Oh man, I want to take that around the world." That's cool. So uh, tell us about your new book. Like I said, this is what your 16th book, and it's called um, Adventure Motorcyclist. Fraser shrugged. Uh, tell us about this book. This book was uh, well. There were there were three purposes in this book. One is uh, I wanted to capture, and my publisher wanted to capture what this eyeball could look at in the year 2000 
through uh, 2020 of this niche of adventure motorcycling. 50 years from now, some kid's gonna look back and say, what was that? You know, what did they do? How did they define adventure motorcycling? Uh, so we, we picked through about 300 uh, articles that I'd written over the years uh, and some good, some bad. We threw out the junk, well, we polished uh, the good ones. And uh, Paul Smith, who's the uh, editor of a, an adventure motorcycle magazine, uh, he and I collaborated on this and he threw out what I thought was good. And, uh, he <laughs> I, I rejected it and put it back in, but uh, it was to capture the essence of adventure motorcycling over the last 20, 22 years. The second purpose was not lose money on this book <laughs> because it's a real small niche. Uh, when you look at the motorcycling niche as a whole, it, it's blossoming, but it'll never be huge. Um, and number three uh, purpose was to get it out there, get it done. Uh, so it's out there. It's called Adventure Motorcycle Ist. That's me. And then Fraser Shrugged. And it's available if you go to soundrider.com, which is uh, the distributor. Okay. And okay. click on their uh, store. And uh, right now, um, go on down to what they're, they call tips and tricks. Uh, the book is there. Right now, it's only available in a print copy. And we chose to go that way um, because to go to an ebook, you make about one tenth of a print copy. So we recovered the the publisher recovered their costs initially um, with with the print copy. Well, it'll be ebook probably by the end of the year. Okay. Well, we'll include a link in the show notes. Uh, you know, like I said, that's uh, you know, and it, that is just one of many books that you have. Can you find some of your other books at Soundwriter? Do you have them? Uh, some of them on Amazon, various places. They're kind of you know. Well, some of them are out of print, but uh, Soundwriter has uh, my 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 bestseller, which was a book called Motorcycle Sex. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we sold a bunch of those. It didn't have much to do with sex. It was a, uh, a spoof on Freud. The subtitle okay. was Freud would never understand the relationship between me and my motorcycle. Sound writers <laughs> got some of the last copies of that. I've seen that book on eBay for $400. We sold it for when it came out for $20. Ah, I'm in the wrong end of this game. I, you know, I'm the writer. Exactly. Uh, but uh, Sound Riders got some of those Motorcycle Six. Um, they also have uh, my book Down and Out, which is a coffee table book, all color. Um, those are out there. Motorcycle Sex is not available except through Sound Rider. Okay. They just right. took some of my, our last inventory. Right. Um, but the other books are out there on Amazon, like Motorcycle Adventurer, the Clancy book, um, the Gasoline Tramp, which is a, a, a Clancy book that he, he wrote and never was able to publish. And uh, then Motorcycle Touring, Everything You Need to Know, those, those are out there. Ebook, uh, print copy, POD. Okay. So they're out there, but uh, uh, some of them are like uh, How to Motorcycle in Europe or uh, How to Motorcycle in New Zealand. Uh, those are long out of print. Those were done in the 90s. Uh, they're, I don't, it's not worth the publisher's time to scan them and try to remarket them. Right, right. right. So you uh, not only wrote a lot of these books, you've documented a lot of your travels uh, with photographs, your photographer. Uh, have you done any of the filmmaking? Has any of that have been about your around the world travels or is it mostly photos and, and you know written articles and books? No, we uh, we did some VHS films on uh, 
um, like uh, um, what we call round the world riders was one. Yeah. Uh, but those are VHS. They haven't yeah. been, and that's that's old stuff. This is back in the eighties, Greg. Nineties. Right. Uh, I got into the magazine world um, by accident, um, and I hate to say it, but everything I learned about writing was from Andy Warhol. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, put that on your tree and try to figure that one out. Right, right, uh, right. But uh, you know, I, I, I morphed into magazines and books uh, from the VHS uh, travel motorcycle world. Sure. So um, like I said, I know you've been kind of cooped up here in the States due to this whole pandemic thing. Uh, what do you got in the works? What have you been working on while you've been idle? Uh, I'm sure you haven't actually been idle, but you haven't been traveling the way that you normally do, I'm sure. Uh, I was down in Mexico about a month ago, okay. and uh, you know the United States is big. This is not a bad place to be uh, in quarantine, you know, border-wise. Um, I've got on my schedule. I'll be in uh, California next week at the BMW 49er rally up in uh, Mariposa, um, BMW rally in Great Falls, Montana, next month, uh, and then the following month I'm going to go to the smallest. I'm just going, I'm going to social distance. I'm going to the smallest town in the USA. And I'm taking only back roads to get there. Uh, and the smallest town is a population of one, but they have a library. And I'm a researcher, you know, I, my ac academic background has been poking my nose in books. So I'm going to spend a little time researching in the library of a town of a population of one. And you're going to reveal what that is? Is that what state it's in at least? Or is it a, well, you to keep that a guarded secret? Let's say it's in Nebraska. Okay. Okay. And uh, it's real close to the home of a Danny Liska for those BMW guys that remember Danny. He was an adventurer before it was called adventure. Um, he, he was, uh, was he involved in the Iron Butt crowd? Uh, no, he was, he was around before Iron Butt. Oh, was well, he before conceived. that? Okay. I know the name, but I couldn't place it. So yeah. No, uh, Dan, Danny rode a BMW up to Alaska and left his wife in Nebraska, and uh, then he went on down to the bottom of South America, and he came back and said to his wife, "I'm out of here," because he had a little farm out there in in the, the rolling hills of Nebraska. Okay, <laughs> that's that's starting to that's starting to fill in a little bit of the blanks. So. Well, you know, as you said, you know, um, whether it's social distancing or just traveling, I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of people that live in the United States, but not nearly as many that live in some other countries. And a lot of us that live in this country are clustered near the coasts or big cities. There is a lot of wide open space. I mean, I live in California and even, I, even though I live on the coast, I don't have to go very far to get away from a lot of people. I mean, there is a lot of wide open space in this state where there's very few people there's a lot more deer than people in some of these areas or there's just you know there's nothing so um yeah that's you know that's the that's what's been an enjoyable part about working at writer i'm sure it's been an enjoyable thing for you for writing books and articles is to share you know your adventures with other people and really to try to inspire them to go out and ride and go experience new places and and new things and like you said yeah it doesn't have to be a particular kind of motorcycle you don't have to have the best type of gear. Uh, you really just have to have the motivation to go out and do it. I'm with you there. I, you know, I've, I've been on a lot of motorcycles that uh, people look at and say, well, that's not an adventure motorcycle. And I say, yeah, but I'm having a heck of an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, again, uh, 
Dr. Fraser, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I know, like I said, I haven't seen you in person in quite a while. Uh, hopefully I can maybe connect with you at uh, one of these rallies or events and, and we can uh, have a couple of beers and, and catch up as well. So I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, tell your riders out there and subscribers to keep subscribing and talk their friends into subscribing if they hear this podcast. And then if they see me on the road or they meet me at some rally or they just want to email me, give me a shout and say, hey, Rider Magazine, that's the place. Thanks, Dr. Hey, I appreciate it. Uh, thanks again for your time and for the Rider Magazine Insider Podcast. I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.